All right, thank you for joining us. I, I, I have to commend you for making it over here. I had, a, uh, I had a guide who was at my elbow the whole time, and I still barely made it. And you guys managed to get here without help, so that shows something about you, says a lot about you. My name is Jonathan Master. I'm the president of Greenville Seminary, and a privilege to be here partnering with Radius and, uh, and just being able to sit under the teaching that we've already received. I want to make a quick comment first about the title um, it's, this really isn't going to be a survey of all of Scottish missionary activity. That would be too long for one session anyway. And uh, I've decided to zero in on a couple of features and a couple of figures. So we're not going to be doing an overall survey of everything that the Lord's done in Scotland uh, through uh, mission work and evangelism, but we're going to be looking at uh, some significant Chapters. Now, I want to also say one other thing by way of introduction. There's a book that I'll reference figures from quite a bit, and it's available up there at the Banner of Truth booth. It's called The St. Andrew Seven. It's not a very long book, but it's, it's an inspiring book about uh, uh, seven men who were training and, and talking about uh, missions at around the same time in Scotland in, at St. Andrews University. I'll refer to three or four of them in my address today, but the St. Andrews 7, and the subtitle should whet your appetite, The Finest Flowering of Missionary Zeal in Scottish History. Well, that's high praise, the finest flowering of missionary zeal in Scottish history, and I think, and I think you'll find that that's right. So I would recommend to you the St. Andrews uh, 7. What I want to do during the time that we have is introduce some key features. Actually, I want to look at three key features of Scottish missionary activity, particularly in the 19th century. Uh, that, that is the time when we do see the finest flowering of Scottish missionary activity. So three key features of Scottish missionary activity, particularly in the 19th century. And then, building on those three features, we want to look at uh, a handful of key figures, names that you should know, men that you'll want to investigate further and learn from and study under. So three features and then a handful of key figures. Now, I want to begin by saying this. The best of Scottish missionary activity had three key features. First, it was rooted in specific doctrinal commitments, though not in any one socioeconomic background. So it was rooted and it, and it flowered from specific doctrinal commitments and not from other sociological features. In other words... When you look at mission activity from Scotland, what you don't see is that only the upper classes are going, or only the working classes are going, or only certain churches in certain regions are sending men. Actually, what you see is a wide variety in terms of the type of men and the type of churches that the Lord used to send men to the mission field. But on the other hand, amidst all that diversity there is significant uniformity in doctrinal commitments. In other words, their theological commitments are what drove them. Second, Scottish missionary activity always flourished most among those who had given themselves to education and training first. 
This dovetails actually with a lot of the things that Brooks said this morning. What we see in the Scottish tradition is that those whom the Lord used most effectively, those who had the longest influence on the nations to which they were sent, were men who devoted themselves to education and training first. In other words, they were zealous, they loved the Lord, and they had a passion for the lost, but they devoted themselves to preparing for the work that God had given them to do. And what is a kind of footnote to that is many of them, when they arrived among these unreached groups, often devoted themselves to educating those people as well. So education plays a great a uh, very significant role in the history of Scottish missions, both on the front end in terms of what they devoted themselves to early on before they went, and then actually on the field when they were there in terms of what they spent their days and weeks and years doing. So that's the second feature. The third feature is this, and this, this dovetails perfectly with what we just heard from Kevin DeYoung. The Scottish mission work led to dramatic social change in many cases, but it always began and always was centered on gospel proclamation. So in other words, it's easy retrospectively to look and say, look at these missionaries, look at what God did through them, look at how he transformed society, transformed the culture, transformed the education system, and that's absolutely true. But what you have to then realize is the way in which that happened was by their faithful proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They understood the mission of the church. They understood what it meant to be a missionary. Now, the Lord used that to do all kinds of other things. But nonetheless, they understood their work was a gospel proclamation work. Now, I want to expand on each of those three features before we get into some of the key figures. And the first feature I really want to expand upon, because it may be new to some of you, is the first one. I said it was rooted in specific doctrinal commitments. So what were those commitments uh, that, that drove these men to do what they did? Well, we could start with the Scots Confession of 1560. Scots Confession of 1560, which was, which was uh, formulated under great duress and, and amidst great suffering, uh, was was intended to speak not just to the Scottish people, but ultimately to the world. In fact, the first line of the preface to the Scots Confession talks specifically about the audience for the Scots Confession, and they put it this way, Long have we thirsted, dear brethren, to have made known to the world the doctrine we profess. And if you read on through the rest of the Scots Confession, you see the same spirit flowing through it. They are thinking not simply in terms of their own region and their own problems. They're thinking globally even then. And so the doctrinal formulations which they arrive at based on their study of the scriptures are ones that they immediately say need to be declared to all men throughout the world. So we can see that in the Scots Confession. But we can see it even more clearly uh, about a hundred years later in the, uh, in the development of the Westminster Standards. And I want to highlight a few elements of the Westminster Standards that specifically speak to this notion of the global reach of the gospel. It begins in chapter 1. The Westminster Confession of Faith begins with a chapter on Holy Scripture. And you might think about 
your own church's doctrinal statement. If you don't subscribe to a confession like the Westminster Confession, perhaps you have your own confession of faith or statement of faith. And oftentimes, statements of faith start with a statement about the Bible. And the Westminster Confession starts with a statement about the Bible. But I wonder if your confession of faith says this. After they say that the Bible is inspired and that the Bible is authoritative, given by God, listen to what they say in their first chapter of the Holy Scriptures. But because these original tongues, speaking about Greek and Hebrew, are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto and interest in the Scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar, it's the common language, of every nation unto which they come. From the very beginning of the Westminster Confession, when they're speaking about the doctrine of the Scripture, one of the implications that's in paragraph one is the need to translate the Bible into all languages of the world. Knowing that Scripture has authority for all people everywhere, Jesus Christ has authority among all nations. And so because of that, they're to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation into which they come. In chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession, which speaks of God's covenant dealings with man, a very rich chapter full of biblical theology, it says this, the preaching of the word the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the lord's supper which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory yet in them is held forth in more fullness evidence and spiritual efficacy to all nations both Jews and Gentiles. What they're saying is this. They're talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they're saying in the New Testament, God has given us the preaching of the Word. He's given us baptism and the Lord's Supper. And what that does, among other things, is holds forth with great clarity to all people, to Jew and Gentile alike. In the chapter on repentance, chapter 15, they say that repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel in all places. Chapter 16 on good works says the same thing, that this needs to be preached to all people, that they might adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries, and glorify God. One of the clearest places that you see this global focus in the Westminster Standards is in chapter 25 which speaks about the church. And here's what they say about the visible church. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion. And they go on in paragraph 3 to talk about all throughout the world who have the presence of the Spirit and are therefore united to Christ and united to to the invisible church. One of the clearest places beyond even these chapters in the Westminster Confession comes in the larger catechism. You know what a catechism is, of course. It's a question and answer document that's meant to train people in the faith. There's a shorter catechism that comes out of Westminster and a larger catechism that comes out of Westminster. Question 53 of the larger catechism says this. How was Christ, this is the question, how was Christ exalted in the ascension, 
Christ was exalted in his ascension, in that having after his resurrection often appeared unto and conversed with the apostles, speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and giving them, this is what we just heard about during the last hour, commission to preach the gospel to all nations. And then in question 191, the catechism deals with the Lord's Prayer and it goes section by section through the Lord's Prayer and tries to delineate what's meant by each petition in the Lord's Prayer, each request in the Lord's Prayer. Question 191 says this, What do we pray for in the second petition, Thy kingdom come? In the second petition, acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in, the church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, and on and on it goes. And what you see at the finest moments of Scottish missionary activity is that those phrases, those doctrinal commitments, were appealed to again and again. And not just, of course, the doctrinal commitments as they're formulated in the Westminster Standards, but the biblical rationale that lies behind them. Because you know, of course, that these confessional statements all have passages that are appealed to. There are cross-references for every statement I read. And those were the driving forces behind this Scottish missionary activity. They were united by common doctrinal commitments, and those were precisely the commitments that united them. And again, I would pause just for a moment and challenge you about this, because it may be the case that you have doctrinal commitments as well. No doubt you do. But the question is, have you made it clear the way in which those doctrinal commitments have a direct bearing on what Christ has called his church to do, and specifically direct bearing on the missionary activity that the church is to engage in? All right, we'll move from the doctrinal commitments then to a handful of specific noteworthy figures. The first man I want to introduce you to, this may be the most familiar name that we'll look at today. The first man I want to introduce you to is Thomas Chalmers. Chalmers is a remarkable figure. In fact, he's recognized even today in contemporary and really godless Scottish circles as a great man in Scottish history. He was prolific as an author, and the Lord used him in his pastoral ministry to effect great social change, which is often what he's noted for as the social change that came from his pastoral work. But Chalmers is an interesting character because in his early years and in his early education and even in his early ministry, he was part of what became known as the Moderate Party. And the Moderate Party, these moderates, were uh, at some level committed to some of the truths of Scripture and in a basic sense would have called themselves Christians. But what Chalmers would say later on is that he, he didn't know God at all. He hadn't really been converted. Now Chalmers ended up uh, being used as the instrument that uh, led to many uh, going into the work of missions because in 1823 when he was 43 years old 
Chalmers became professor of moral philosophy at St. Andrews University. And that's really the story behind the St. Andrews Seven. It started there in 1823 when Chalmers came to uh, St. Andrews. At that time, St. Andrews had about 200 students, and Chalmers was the best-known minister in Scotland uh, because of his work in Glasgow for some years before. Uh, Within a month of Chalmers being appointed as professor at St. Andrews University, the local newspaper wrote this about Chalmers, the popularity of Dr. Chalmers grows daily. Now, the thing you have to understand, though, about Chalmers, and I mentioned his his, uh, moderate beliefs early on, he uh, he, he underwent a dramatic conversion. The Lord saved him. Here's what he says uh, about that conversion. He says, I am now of the opinion, this was during his time at St. Andrews, I am now of the opinion founded on experience that on the system of do this and live, there is no peace and even no trust and worthy obedience can ever be attained. It is instead Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's clarity about the gospel and clarity about the mission of the church. He goes on to write this. When this belief enters the heart, joy and confidence enter along with it. The righteousness which we try to work out for ourselves eludes our impotent grasp, and never can a soul arrive at true or permanent rest in the pursuit of this object. The righteousness which by faith we put on secures our acceptance with God and secures our interest in his promise and gives us a part in those sanctifying influences by which we are enabled to do with aid from on high what we could never do without it. We look to God in a new light. We see him as a reconciled father. That love to him which terror scares away re-enters the heart with a new principle and a new power. We become new creatures in Jesus Christ our Lord. So was he after change? He absolutely wanted to see men changed. He wanted to see societies changed. He sent his best students to places that were hostile to the gospel to live and die to see men changed. But how were they changed? They were changed by the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, as he says, a new principle and a new power. We become new creatures in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, it's interesting to think of the parallels in the United States. We're not dealing here with U.S. missionary activity, but actually around this same time, God was at work in men who were uh, instructing seminarians at what, what is Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1820s and the 1830s. And during that time, about 30%, I was speaking with someone before this session, about 30% of those who graduated from Princeton Seminary went overseas to live and die. And, and what drove them was the same thing that drove the Scots from St. Andrews. The, the renewed emphasis on the doctrine of the new birth and on proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Really, a reliance on the sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of the gospel. So much of what we see today that gets in the way of faithful biblical proclamation is premised, really, on on a lack of confidence 
in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This can't actually transform people. But Chalmers, because he had seen it in his own life, uh, recognized the great change that Christ could, could bring about in a man's heart. And as I said, the same thing was happening over here. So Chalmers' whole ministry changed. He was a pastor already, but his whole ministry changed. His study changed. He began to teach the free offer of forgiveness in Christ and the necessity of the Holy Spirit's new birth. And interestingly enough, what went hand in hand with this, and we see this so often in the history of the church, and we see it in the Scottish church, what went hand in hand with this was when he understood the gospel with clarity and when he'd been transformed by it, you know what else he decided to do? He decided to, to re, re-engage in his study of Greek and Hebrew. And he encouraged all his students to do the same. In other words, this transforming work of God the Holy Spirit through the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ led him back to his Bible, back to the sources, to the hard work that's necessary to understand what God has said in his word. So by the time Chalmers arrived at St. Andrews at age 43, his entire focus, his entire trajectory, his interests, the way he taught had radically changed. Now it's not clear that the university understood all of that at the time. They knew of Chalmers as the great uh, giant of scholarship. But Chalmers had changed. And when he got there, it became obvious how he had changed. Now, how was his influence felt on Scottish missions? Why is he worthy of bringing up and understanding? Well, I want to introduce you now to four men who were students of Chalmers at St. Andrews during those early years. First, and perhaps the most uh, esteemed of these men, was a man named John Urquhart, Sir John Urquhart. He was raised as a Congregationalist, by a faithful pastor. His father was urged to send him to St. Andrews, not because he wanted to train to be a minister. At that time in Scotland, in order to be a lawfully ordained minister, you had to attend university. But that wasn't why his father sent him. But his father sent him to St. Andrews because he thought it would prepare him well for anything. And that's that's what he was persuaded of. But six months before he entered Chalmers' classes at St. Andrews, he was converted. And he writes this to his pastor. My first impressions of danger as a sinner were caused by a sermon you preached on a Lord's Day evening, evening worship. At that time, I was very much affected. It was then, I think, that I really first prayed. I retired to my apartment and with many tears confessed my guilt before God. Now, here's what you have to understand. He was from a fairly uh, high-born station, and, and he was a good and moral and upstanding man with tremendous academic promise. But, but what he didn't have was a real knowledge of the Savior. Six months before he entered university, the Lord opened his eyes and saved him through the preaching of the word. Second, Alexander Duff. He was raised really on the opposite end of the spectrum from Urquhart. He was raised by a father who was a small farmer, and he was raised in a, in a Christian family, a Christian home, a home where the gospel was well known. His father had been converted through the ministry of Charles Simeon. And Duff, 
said that he never remembered a time when he did not believe the Bible and understand himself to be a sinner and in need of God's grace and, and, and never really remembered a time when he wasn't trusting uh, in, in Christ for his salvation. And so, again, a very different kind of experience, a sort of working class farming experience as opposed to a more upper class experience, and, and a man who had never been told that he could rely on his good works or rely on his morality to, to have a relationship with God. In fact, he always understood the truth of the Gospels. Father was a very, very faithful instructor. And there were three experiences, though, that did shape him. They weren't converting experiences. It appears that Duff was converted already, but three experiences did shape him dramatically, again, just before he sat under Chalmers. First, he had a dream about the great white throne judgment. He understood the stories of Scripture. He understood that the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the one appointed as the living and the dead. To him, all men must give an account. And he had this dream about the great white throne. And it caused him, when he woke up, to think about his own status and to look at himself and, and, and consider his calling and election. But also, he began to think about many who had not heard of the Savior. He also nearly drowned in a stream near his home. The stream flooded unexpectedly, and he was caught up in that flood, and, and, and he almost lost his life. And, and that, like many near-death experiences, caused him to think through the whole trajectory of his life up to that point. And then thirdly, he was caught in a snowdrift in the Scottish Highlands. It's hard. We're here in late June in Charlotte. But imagine uh, being in, in, in the Scottish Highlands in the middle of winter. In fact, it was actually one of the most severe winters in recorded history in the Highlands, the winter of 1819 and 1820. And he and a friend were trapped in a snowstorm. They, they didn't know where they were going to stay for the night. And they sat down and began to pray, and in the midst of their prayer, they saw a flare go up, which was actually uh, something that a fisherman had sent up nearby, but they, they followed that light, and it ended up taking them to a cottage, and they received food and, and, and warmth. They had a roof over their heads that night. They were rescued temporarily, and, and the reason why I bring that up, and the reason why Duff brings that up is frequently, when he was on the mission field, he, he would recall that experience. Uh, I was going to die. And the Lord saved me, and the Lord answered my prayer. So that's Alexander Duff. We'll return to each of these men. Third, Robert Nesbitt. Nesbitt was the youngest of eight children. He was a man who had bad health really throughout his life, certainly from his childhood years. He had an awkward personality. Brooks talked about the Difficulty of finding someone who has normal social skills. I'm not sure that Nesbitt actually had normal social skills from what we could tell. One of the reasons for this was he had this uh, unusual attachment to his mother. He was the youngest of these eight children. She had a, a, a significant, almost an overbearing influence on his life. And so that made him awkward in other situations and had a significant effect on him as he considered going to the mission field later on. His father was a farmer as well, so not a, a high position in society, but he did very well in grammar school and therefore was able to enroll at St. Andrews uh, to be a minister. But, but when he entered, even training for the pastorate, he was as yet 
unconverted. And the way in which the Lord worked to convert him was his brother uh, died in an accident at sea. And, uh, and, and so the Lord used that to raise spiritual questions in his mind, but he still had no inclination or interest in going overseas, largely because of his attachment to his mother. Fourth, John Adam. This is the fourth man I want to introduce you to. His father was a merchant, and so he had uh, greater financial resources, but he was always very rebellious. He resisted discipline. And at age 16, he made some response to the preaching of the gospel. You've known people like this who perhaps in a time of rebellion hear the gospel and, and seem to respond in some way. Uh, but later on, he, he looked back and realized that it wasn't really a true conversion. He said, what I then called repentance was only mortified pride. Uh, knowledge was mistaken for faith. Excited feeling for love and external acts for obedience. And so what he realized is there really hadn't been a heart transformation. He was confronted by his sin and his pride, but nonetheless hadn't really come to know the Lord. But what happened was he came under the influence of a group of evangelical Christians from the city of Geneva, French-speaking group, who had been influenced by a Scotsman named Robert Haldane, who began to teach there in Geneva on the book of Romans. And there's a whole story we could tell about Robert Haldane, who began to teach these unconverted men the book of Romans, just simply going through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Later on, one of the converts who became uh, famous in his own right was asked, what was it about Haldane's teaching that was so powerful? And he said, oh, it wasn't Haldane's teaching. It was, it was Haldane's finger. And what he meant was Haldane would always point to the verse Look at this verse in the book of Romans. And, and it was that that, that, drew, that God used to draw these men to himself. But in any case, John Adam came under the influence of some of these men who had been converted under Haldane's ministry. And it was really there that he truly understood the gospel. And he wrote this, Oh, how satisfying to the soul to know that the work is finished, that its salvation is accomplished forever. Oh, what peace does it diffuse over the whole man. From this change in my views, I have been brought to meditate on my dedication to the work of the Lord, to give up myself, should it be his will, to the sacred ministry, to make known unto others the good news of salvation by a Redeemer. To this end, I shall direct all my studies. And three years after that, he came back to St. Andrews to sit under Chalmers' teaching. Now, what did they learn under Thomas Chalmers' that was so significant, these four men whom I've introduced to you. Well, first of all, one of the things that they had to do was engage in years of rigorous study. You remember how when Chalmers was converted, one of the first things he did was he went back and relearned his Greek and Hebrew. And there were years of rigorous study that he pointed these students to. Students both then and now were tempted to take the path of least resistance. And maybe you feel this compulsion even in yourself. You recognize the work that God's given to do, and you want to get there as quickly as possible, taking the path of least resistance. In fact, it reminds me really of my first day in my position at Greenville Seminary. Another seminary leader took me aside and said, the thing you have to understand about seminary education is it's a race to the bottom. And he was, in some sense, not endorsing this, but just sort of shrugging his shoulders. There's nothing we can do. And that, the same was true there. But what we, and what we find in addition 
in, uh, in the 19th century at, at, in St. Andrews is not just people wanting to take the path of least resistance, which Chalmers always argued vigorously against doing, but a kind of anti-intellectualism that pervaded in Christian circles. In, in Chalmers' era, there were, this came in a number of religious guises, uh, there were those who argued that the only real knowledge worth having was a knowledge of Jesus Christ, which sounds pious and sounds spiritual, but was really a way of saying, you don't need to study. You don't need to put in years of preparation as long as you know Jesus. There were those who believed that knowledge of the scriptures came through direct revelation by the Holy Spirit. And then there were those who, when discussing missions work, it urged young men not to study, not to devote themselves to study, because after all, the people that you're going to are uneducated anyway. A kind of ethnocentrism that diminished the work. Uh, in fact, they would say things like, you're going to ignorant savages. You don't need to study here and now. But what we see among these men under the influence of Chalmers was that they understood that the work that God had called them to do required careful and rigorous study. Urquhart, I've introduced you to him before. He was, in many ways, the most scholarly of all these men. He won virtually all the St. Andrew's academic prizes in 1824 and 1825. And here's what he said about his time with Chalmers and what Chalmers impressed upon him about preparation for mission work. To be endowed with talents, Chalmers would say, was not only a matter of high and distinguished privilege, it was also a thing of deep and fearful responsibility. In other words, you've been given these intellectual gifts by God, and you've been given these opportunities to study by God. And that's not just a privilege. It is a privilege. It's also a great responsibility. Duff, whom I've mentioned already, won the prize for the best translation into Latin of Plato's Apology for Socrates. Adam, John Adam, I've mentioned him to you, he could not rest, he says, until he got to the place during his time at St. Andrews when studying the Bible, listen to this, he could recall at once to memory the corresponding expressions in Greek and Hebrew. So in other words, he's reading his English Bible and he, he would not stop until everything he read in English he could also recite from memory in Greek and Hebrew. It was that kind of commitment. Here's how Chalmers himself put it. If ambitious at all of that wisdom that can devise a right for the service of humanity, in other words, if you really want to learn these things that human beings need the most, in other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ, this doesn't happen by the wildly irregular march of a wayward and meteoric spirit. You'll never arrive at it that way. It is by a slow but surer path, by a fixed devotedness of aim and the steadfast prosecution of it, by breaking your day into hours and its seasons, and then by a resolute adherence to them. It is not by the random sallies of him who lives without purpose and without a plan. It is by the unwearied regularities of him who plies the exercise of a self-appointed round and most strenuously perseveres in them. I hope you understand what he's saying. What he's saying is, you don't arrive at the knowledge you need to bring these great truths to people 
by simply reading a chapter here and scrolling on Twitter there. No, no, it's, it's unwearied, regular pursuit. This is what's necessary to grow in your knowledge of the Scriptures. It's interesting, we can look back and look at these men who were training under Chalmers and see the books they took out from the St. Andrew's Library. And what we see is they applied themselves diligently to study. Were they zealous for the work of gospel proclamation overseas? Oh, they were zealous. But they were zealous, and that zeal was harnessed first in study and preparation. They started a student missionary society in which they primarily prayed and raised money when they could to support the work of missions. Chalmers himself raised mission, raised, uh, or chaired the town missionary society. There was a student missionary society and a town missionary society. And what Chalmers did as chair is he lectured on past mission work and he, he brought in missionaries to give their testimonies to these men who were preparing for this great work overseas. There were all kinds of conflicts and obstacles that they faced. We don't have time to go through all of them. And each of these men, in their own way, eventually landed on a common idea, which was that they were going to go to the nation of India, a nation of many different language and people groups, and a nation in great need of the gospel. So the question we might want to ask ourselves is, what is it that they accomplished? Well, let me finish the story of each of these men. Sir John Urquhart, the most intellectually gifted, the leader in many respects of these men, gave great speeches on the need to go to India, the great need of the gospel there. And what we see in Urquhart's life is that on January 8th, 1827, before he could go, the Lord took his life. You might say, what a waste. This was what he had prepared for. He'd given his life for this. He was the leader of these men. Oh, but it was no waste at all. Oh, the missionaries each recounted Urquhart's words when he was looking to go to India himself of the living solitude of being among a city of idolaters. And that, for some reason, that, that phrase resonated in their minds as they had that solitude living among a city of idolaters. Alexander Duff. Well, Duff, who came from a very different social uh, status from Urquhart, you'll remember, devised a plan for evangelism within 24 weeks of his arrival in India. He began by founding a school in central Calcutta, which was at that time probably the most difficult of the places in India to minister the gospel because the caste system was strictly enforced. And nonetheless, Duff set to work to found this Christian school. For a generation, his school was the largest and most successful school of any kind in all of India. By 1862, attendance was 1,723 just in Calcutta. 211 of them were girls, which is just unthinkable at that time. And there were many other schools besides. And Duff's uh, thinking was this, that if we establish these schools that clearly teach them the gospel, we have this captive audience of children. 
and, and we'll, we'll teach them all the other subjects, but we'll clearly preach the gospel to them. And in so doing, we'll, we'll infiltrate the culture. There were five schools at the end who, who then began to move from teaching these children the gospel to training Christian ministers. And they, they trained in 19, by, by 1871 nine ministers and ten catechists who were Indians themselves to do this great work. Um, one one uh, Hindu observer in 1879, so this is not a Christian convert, this is a Hindu observer, uh, said this. He delivered a lecture entitled, India Asks Who is Christ, in 1879. And he said this, We breathe, think, feel, move in a Christian atmosphere under the influence of this Christian education. The whole of mature society is awakened, enlightened, reformed. Our hearts have been touched, conquered, subjugated by a superior power, and that power is Christ. When he arrived, there were none who knew the name of Christ in this city. And by 1879, that was the testimony. One, uh, one of the elders in the church that was founded there, planted there by Duff, said this, with a full knowledge of the facts, with a personal knowledge of them for nine years, I declare that all that is good, useful, and healthy in education in northern India for the past 30 years is due to him. In this aspect, and I speak the cold language of fact, Dr. Duff has been a greater benefactor to India than any man I can name. What about Robert Nesbitt? Well, Nesbitt, remember, was the youngest of eight children, awkward socially, and had this difficult relationship with his mother. Well, that that relationship with his mother, as this often happens even today, almost caused him not to go to India because she desperately wanted him to stay. She desperately wanted him nearby. You know, we see this in the Gospels, don't we? Remember when James and John come to Jesus and they, they want to be seated, one at his right hand and one at his left in his kingdom. Mark records that for us and Jesus speaks about greatness and how it's defined. But Matthew includes this important detail, doesn't he? That it was their mother who told them to ask Jesus that question. Nesbitt fell under that kind of influence But the Lord actually was merciful to Nesbitt in a way because while he was on the boat to India, uh, his mother died. And he received word of that when he arrived. And there is a sense in which, as tragic as that was, it freed him then uh, to minister uh, with liberty. He worked in Bombay, which was another very, very difficult field. He, He developed into a leading scholar of the Marathi language, And he wrote and revised the Marathi New Testament. And the Lord, interestingly, used his problems with his mother to help him. Here's what we read. When Indian children were converted and sought Christian baptism, the opposition they usually received was from their Hindu mothers. And it was heartrending. They would cling to their children hysterically. They would say they would die or kill themselves. They would strike their foreheads with bricks and blood would flow freely. The natural impulse of missionaries was to shrink from an action that could inflict such mental suffering on relatives. But the Lord had been at work in Nesbitt's background. 
Because it says, this apparently kind impulse, however, had to be resisted on two grounds. First, the conscience of the convert, determined to seal his newfound faith in baptism, could not be violated even at a mother's bidding. Second, he recognized, if it were to become known that female demonstrations could avert baptisms, Hindu priests would ensure that a plentiful supply of demonstrators, mothers, was always on hand. What's fascinating to see, and we see it still today, is that the Lord works through men of different backgrounds to accomplish the work that he's given them to do. Some of these things were actually deficiencies in these men's upbringing. But the Lord used it for good. Finally, John Adam, a rebellious young man, son of a merchant, resisted correction, uh, gave some profession of faith, but wasn't truly converted. Well, he arrived in 1830 in Calcutta, having survived two shipwrecks on the way there. And his first goal, all of these men followed this pattern, his first goal was to learn the local language and only afterwards to preach. He worked with other missionaries who had been there to revise the Bengali New Testament. He became an expert in that language. He too died after only a few years in 1831. This is just a sampling of Scottish missionaries in the 19th century. My favorite Scottish missionary of this time, William Chalmers Burns, you heard him referenced in an earlier address, went to Canada and then ultimately went to China and died there. Also a great example. He did the same thing that these men did. He went to China. He spent the first years learning the language, being diligent, giving himself to study, and only then began to minister. Robert Murray McShane, who's also been mentioned, took the words of the Westminster Confession, which were really taken from the Scripture seriously, and engaged in mission work to the Jewish people. He believed that God had had called him to do just that. But what are the lessons that we see among this great diversity of men, men from different backgrounds, different parts of Scotland, and different, with different intellectual abilities? Well, again, I'll return to these three lessons. The first is all of them shared specific doctrinal convictions. To quote from the president of Princeton Seminary at this time, Archibald Alexander, he said this, In comparison with salvation, all other subjects are trivial. That's what, uh, that's what Chalmers knew. That's what each of these men knew. In comparison with salvation, everything else is trivial. They also knew of the necessity and the implications of true conversion. Quote Alexander again, The implantation of spiritual life in a soul which is dead in sin is an event the consequences of which will never end. You want to see radical transformation? Faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The conversion of a soul is an event the influences and consequences of which will never end. They also all shared a commitment to study. This is one of the great features of the Scottish missionary tradition. Before they went, all spent years of preparation so that they might know Greek and Hebrew have a clear grasp on the Bible and theology, and better understand what we might today call apologetics, how to share and defend the faith. After they arrived in whatever field the Lord sent them to, they spent whatever time they could learning the language so that they might communicate the gospel with clarity and without error. They were all playing the long game. 
Now, some of them died before seeing the fruit of that. But nonetheless, they were committed to playing the long game. And the Lord even used their death to foster the growth of the church. Thirdly, what I would say that we learn from these men is the radical effect of the gospel. The cumulative effect of these four men and Chalmers that I've introduced to you was massive. They were used by God to change, to change an entire people group for a generation. They went about it in different ways, some through direct preaching, some through preaching and education, but they were all committed to what I would call the Pauline method, which is this, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This is what they were committed to doing. This is what they were committed to pouring out their life in service of. And in so doing, they learned and I think displayed the lesson that Robert Murray McShane intended to convey to a friend of his, Reverend Dan Edwards, who is training to be a missionary among the Jewish people and in order to do that had to learn German. He was laboring and McShane wrote this, I know that you will apply hard to German. But do not forget that the culture of the inner man, I mean the heart, how diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp, every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember that you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. And then here's what he closes with to this man who is engaged in intense training. It is not great talent God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Well, let's pray. Our Father, as we look to the past, we are humbled by the way in which you have worked. We are also encouraged by the way in which you worked through so many different types of men from so many different backgrounds. Cause us, Father, to learn the lessons that you teach us from the past and cause us to, like them, take up the great work that you've given your people to do. We ask for this zeal, this hard work, this unwillingness to tamper with your word. And we ask for this in Jesus' name.